15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Oh, that's a cheer we used to do in softball. Uh, what? It's, uh, actually Geico. Whenever someone hit a triple, we would wave our bats and yell, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. But we never got to use it because we would only hit home runs. Annoying. The phrase is from Geico because they help save people money? Geico? Yeah, they were our team sponsor. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Welcome to another partner episode between BRC and Friends and First Presbyterian Church of Palo Alto, where I serve as the pastor. I hope you enjoy the conversation. My name is Bruce Reyes Chow, and this is BRC and Friends. Each episode, I chat with activists, artists, academics, and adventurers to discuss politics, faith, pop culture, technology, and as you will discover, pretty much everything else that pops into our heads. This is basically an excuse for me to hang out with friends and colleagues and riff about things that matter. Welcome to BRC and Friends. Yeah, welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Palo Alto webinars, a place where we engage the hearts and minds of academics, artists, authors, and community leaders. My name is Bruce Reyes Chow, and I'm the pastor here at First Presbyterian Church. Uh, just before we get started, know that this webinar will be recorded and shared on our YouTube channel and Instagram TV, as well as posted as part of my podcast, BRC and Friends. I'm really excited today. This is our final webinar of the year can't believe it's gone so quickly. And we had tried to get Katie on before, but I'm excited we have Katie Kazi on uh, to kind of uh, your bat and clean up on our first season of the webinars from the church. So no pressure, uh, but uh, I'm really excited. But so let's just start off uh, our hour together and just tell us who you are. Who Who is Katie? So um, my name is Katie Causey. I just ran for Palo Alto School Board. I received over 100 endorsements, over 12,000 votes, and lost to an incumbent by just 2% of the vote in a tight race that was too close to call on the days following the election. So for a first-time candidate, I did all right. Um, a little bit about myself. When I wrote my ballot statement, I tried to count all the hours of volunteer work I've done in this community and I couldn't keep track. Since I was a teenager, I've spent my time assisting families, volunteering at community organizations, and in the last years, fundraising for nonprofits supporting youth. Through all this, for over a year, I watched or attended every single school board meeting, and I looked forward to every single one because I am a PAUSD graduate, and our district knows how to create the type of ambitious, civic-minded leaders who watch board meetings for fun. As a proud graduate of Ohlone, JLS, and Pali, I know firsthand the values we instill in our students, and I'm super proud to have run with many amazing candidates. I said throughout the campaign, this is a board position that requires working together, and there's no one I would rather work with than those those who are willing to run for office during a pandemic, fires, protests to advocate for our community. And what I want to emphasize in our conversation today is throughout this period, community members have shown again and again how much they're willing to support each other and show up for each other. And right now our community is facing some really big challenges, and I'm sure we're going to be discussing those more in depth. But the solutions that were discussed in this election cycle, even if you're an elected official, on your own, you can't make those solutions a reality and it takes all of us to make them a reality. And what I always hope comes out of elections is community members find issues that excite them and they're ready to drive change around those issues. And I'm really excited to discuss today about some of those issues and also like what community members can do to shape solutions. Great, awesome, thank you. You are ready to go. Like, oh, we're yeah. Ready. oh yeah, oh yeah, I'm coming off. <laughs> like, like, you're, I, uh, you're like the high of the campaign and you got to a little breath and now let's go again. <laughs> I was like, I we were saying, so we were talking beforehand about like how I've been in withdrawal from campaigning. And then I was like, <laughs> when you messaged me last night, I was like, it was like, I need somebody to like call me like to each day and just be like, okay, like I miss Tell like going something. through talking. Yeah, to, let's talk about the issues. Let's talk about talking points. Like, That's let's awesome. go. That's awesome. well. Yeah. So let's let's before we dive too much into it. I want to. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you know, I read somewhere on, on one of your things about you wanting to run for office, and particularly the school board. Since yeah. since you, I mean, I, it's pretty nerdy to go to all the school board meetings as a young person. Oh, I love yeah. it. It's oh, it's yeah. great. I watch young folks now. Kind of pandemic has opened meetings up so much, and but you were the, obviously going before pandemic. So uh, what do you think? Why were you driven towards that? Was that something you were raised with? Is that something you picked up in school? I mean, why, why, why were you going to school board meetings as a young person? Um, so one, like it is. So actually, when we were drafting my opening statements for debates, there was one draft of it where I said not um, 
like talking about how we like to create ambitious civic-minded leaders i was like there's another way to say that where we're our district is very good at creating <laughs> nerds like um but i so i grew up in palo alto obviously um had a really great experience growing up in palo alto but until i was in high school and unfortunately um my freshman year of high school um our community was hit with a series of young people who took their own lives and that kind of a lot of students who went through that period have discussed running for school board based off of that period and i think and what again there's so many things that i want to come off of this election cycle and one of them is young people running for office and um because i think there's going to be a lot of students who are in school right now and think maybe i want to run for school board one day based off what's happening right now and that was kind of my i was always like a lot of students i knew they were like i'll run for school board one day like maybe like maybe one day like maybe when i have kids um maybe and like uh then i went to college and I was a women's studies major at the George Washington University and how my program was structured was each week we would get a case from a school or community. It might be something like a Title IX case. It might be um, an example of a hate crime. It might be a community mediation. And we would walk through how to shape solutions through both community action and through um, policy solutions. And I was doing that work and I was like, and I started to watch school board meetings a little bit because our district was facing a lot of the issues that I was discussing in my coursework. And I was like, mm-hmm. and again, in the back of my head, I'd like, maybe I'll, maybe I'll run for school board one day. And then on a whim after I graduated, um, I thought that I was always going to go into journalism after college. I had spent all my time in college working in journalism and was mainly covering uh, politics and photographing all the, the the politicians who come through GW, and then the 2016 election happened, and uh, two weeks and I, there's a particular event that sticks out in my mind. Of I was always involved in photojournalism, and two weeks like right after the election, DC is a fantastic place to be a to get your like bearings as a journalist, and it's really like it's a very safe place to be a journalist because it's like all of the, for the most part, most of the neighborhoods are used to protests. And so you can really do them. You can really cover them well. And I remember a week after the, like right after the election, there was a white supremacist who um, stabbed a photojournalist in the stomach at a, at a, at a, at a protest. And I just like called my parents and I was like, I don't want to live in DC anymore. And I'm not going into journalism. And like, yeah, this isn't. And I was like, I'm coming home. Like I'll like see you in two weeks. And um, I, so I moved back here. Didn't really know was kind of talking with journalism outlets, but the, the election had really turned journalism on its head. And mm-hmm. I, I, on a whim, I, there was this Emily's List program that they had, Emily's List had just started after the election that trains women to run for office. And I was like, I'm never going to run for office. I saw people who ran for office when I was in, like, when you're going to school in DC, everybody's going into politics. And I was like, have fun, you guys. Like, that's, you know, that's you, have fun with that. Like, that's your, your, your game. And um, I, so I was like, I'm never going to go into politics, but I might meet a woman that I really want to support. And I went to that program and I was talking with everybody else. There was older than me. Everyone else, there was a parent and a mother. And I was sitting down and they were like, well, tell me about some of the issues in your community. And I was like, we've had these problems with mental health. We've had these problems with title nine. And we, at that time, we had just had a, a big budget issue And they were like, you know, the issues in your community really well. Like you, I was like, I always thought I was like, they were like, you should run for school board. And I was like, I'll do it one day. And they were like, no, do it now. Like these issues are not going to wait. Right. Right. That's great. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about Emily's list, but um, so tell, for those who might not know about it, other than they've heard about it as a place to kind of reminded me of a little bit of Paul Wellstone's like gathering people together who really want to make a difference in the world flesh out a little bit what more what what is emily's list and how do you have any idea like what's a little bit very snippet of the history and and sure and, and what it's doing um sure so emily's list they've kind of gone in a different direct different direction since 2016 um so traditionally they are a um 
they are a PAC, a political action committee that funds uh, pro-choice Democratic. One sec, is there a siren? Can you hear sirens? Yeah, good. We're okay. Yeah, okay, we can hear I, it, but I'm good. Close, good. Keep going. Okay, because it's kind of the me- it's a metaphor for the world at this point. Like <laughs> we just keep going. Stuff's burning down behind us, and we just keep going, and we're yeah got peripheral yeah. vision. We go for yeah. it. Yeah. So they're they're a pack. Um, they fund pro. I'm gonna go ahead and close the, my windows just really quickly. I'm sorry. So sorry. One sec. <laughs> <laughs> We'll pause for a brief station identification. This is First Presbyterian Church webinars. <laughs> this is where you know, folks, when you're watching this, if you're watching this later on YouTube, without we are uh, we don't edit, we just roll with it, 2020 style. There we go. There All we right. go. Okay. Awesome. So Emily's list is um, a political action committee, and they're focused was always funding pro-choice democratic women um, running for office. And so you'll mainly see them around large campaigns, like congressional Senate races um, and presidential races. Um, But the um, following 2016, they were kind of shifted their gears a little bit of they're still a pack, but they are really interested in making sure we really establish that pipeline of women running for, of women running for office. So they have an online community and now since 2016, it really like, it's a great training program. If you are brand new to politics, like I, I use some of their, I even use some of their training to help with um, some of my experience fundraising for nonprofits. Like they gave me the background of that fundraising and that's kind of, yeah, so since then, they've really established a, a, a strong training program and a strong pipeline about to make sure we're supporting women running for office at every level, because it's like not just at the, not just getting money behind congressional candidates, but making sure that women who are, um, who are getting their start in like local races are getting, being supported by other women. Right. That's awesome. That's great. I mean, I, 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 as I watch your campaign and a few others, I was like, clearly there's stuff behind it. This isn't somebody who just said, oh, I'm going to think I'm going to run and then just kind of put it together. Like there's clearly so much uh, behind the scenes that you had set up and all that, which is, which is great. I mean, I think that's, you, yeah. you know, I get all that stuff done. So, um, so let's move, let's move on from that though. Um, and I, I want to touch briefly on the election, the, campaign election experience. And then after that, we're going to get to some issues, but so tell us, so you, you decided to run, you were out there. I saw you all over the place. It was great. Um, you know, we, uh, our, our, our family voter guide uh, supported you. And mm-hmm. uh, so t- what was both from a, I guess a, a personal standpoint, but also just as an experience, what, what was that like? Cause you're reflecting back on this now, not even a month ago. Right. So it's, yeah. you know, it's not, not a long time, but yeah. How was that experience? What are you taking away from the experience? I love that you are um, I'm sure there's part of you that's disappointed, but also that there's so much uh, energy wow. out of the experience that you're clearly have been talking about. Yeah. Um, what's it been yeah. like? What was it like? Um, it is honestly the happiest I have ever been in my life. It is such, such an honor and privilege to run. And especially what I want students to take away is like, I think there's a lot of students where you might not see somebody who looks like you running or it was like you running. And I think especially how we talk to young women about this is like, I always thought I like, I'm a, I'm an introverted person. I grew up was a really shy kid. I was like, would never do that. That seems so stressful and over the years as like the number one thing that really continually motivated to run was doing a ton of volunteer work in the community. And when you're talking to a teacher and I, there was one conversation in particular that always like motivated me to run where there was a teacher I was doing volunteer work last year um, with. And she, she told me she's not in our district or she's um, she lives in another city and she was talking about um, uh, going to her state senator and saying like, hey, you need to be doing more to support like these education bills and just having a really negative experience talking to him, having a really feeling so ignored. And it's like, teachers are the hardest working people in America. And it's like, okay, the minimum, 
right now it's like the minimum you can do is make sure they feel listened to. And you do see so many people and especially the people that our kids have seen get involved in politics of people, people like Donald Trump who are so, so volatile and so violent. And I seeing like, I want our students to know it's like being a leader and running for office. It's really just about making sure the people in your community get heard and, I didn't know what this race was going to look like because I was always planning to run this year. And then the pandemic happened. And I thought that I was going to be, I thought I was going to be like the moderate candidate. Cause I was like, I was always planning to do this. I'll stick with like pragmatic examples. And then as issues around reopening came up and a lot of the issues that I run, I was running on, like came a lot more, became a lot more dire and in issues like mental health and, Um, because in the pandemic, everything gets exacerbated and it's, it is such, such a privilege. It was so much, it's, it's so much fun. It's so much, it's such a great way to feel like really connected to your community. And I really want students to know, like, you'll find your supporters, you'll find your, like, you know, don't, don't do this with like, don't, you know, don't do this with like, this isn't something you have to do with like political consultants and, and whatnot, like, my campaign team was um, a, a friend of mine who had worked on another campaign with me and my treasurer was one of the first people I came out to in college who was just like, had no experience in, in campaigns. And I was like, I need somebody to learn campaign finance. And, exactly. And just make sure and, I don't get in trouble. Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> and he was just like, yeah, I'll do it. Like, let's go. And it was, it was everything I wanted. It was like a very like, just a really positive space where like you you feel just when you're if you're doing this right I think you feel like more like yourself and just having like good people around me like talking about moving solutions forward and I really if students are interested in running they absolutely can dive into it one of the things that was helpful for me was I actually helped elect a Shanakta rap in uh 2018 um who's one of our school board members and that experience was really helpful for me to see because I I do worry about young people seeing these elections and if it doesn't go their way they can feel kind of um catastrophizing in the moment but it's you're it's such a long game and even some of the solutions even six months after in 2018 some of the solutions that were discussed became a reality and it's like that's why you run and having pushed forward like we pushed forward everything that i wanted to um and i the fact that i came so close to winning it's so telling of we did it on a much smaller budget than the other people in the race i was not a traditional candidate like and it's just so telling you do not have to be a traditional candidate. You do not have to fundraise a ton of money to do really well in these races. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's what I love about what I've, you know, I've been to Palo Alto for about 18 months now out of San Francisco where the politics machine is just wild mm-hmm. and crazy. And it was, I loved it and was involved in campaigns, but here it's, it's very local. I mean, it's just yeah. so, so local. It's, it's great. Um, I tell the story often that when, I interviewed the city council candidates. Somebody asked, like, how did you get that to happen? I'm like, well, I asked them. Yeah. Like it was, and they were like an hour to talk about myself in the middle of pandemic. Sure. I'll do that. So, I mean, it was, it was, you know, and I think part of me is like, well, it's local. They probably would have done it at any point because it's just a different vibe here, which I think is, is great. I mean, I, uh, I, I really do think, think that's amazing. So, um, uh, so, you know, I think that, that all of you have been sharing about uh, running and all that. I think there is this great lesson to be learned about kind of the the great art, right? And 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 you're not going to win them all. And once you get involved yeah. in politics, you see that some of it is just being there um, and kind of seeing what's next. So that's great. So let's talk about a couple of things. So I, I think we want to dive into a few things, uh, uh, issues in particular, love to just pick your brain mm-hmm. and chat a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but first let me remind, uh, we, we have a few folks attending. Uh, if you have any questions for Katie, put them in the chat and the, not in the chat in the Q and a, and we'll get to those later. Uh, but let's, let's, let's start talking about schools and then we'll kind of broaden out a little bit. You were, um, I, I think it's fascinating that you saw yourself as initially wanted to be the moderate candidate. Um, so 
you know, and, and growing up in the Bay Area and, you know, like it's left, left and lefter for me. I it's just like yeah. where in the spectrum there you, you sit. But so curious where you found yourself uh, by the end of it. Would you, did you feel yeah. like you were not the moderate? I mean, I, how, don't, how I don't think you, I was the moderate. Uh, candidate I don't think you were either, but. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because like, I, I think I, I went in at the beginning of the, the campaign, we were, we were having some conversations and they were like, I, I was talking with, with um, some friends who, who are actually political consultants who I, when you, I don't necessarily recommend using political consultants, but I think it's like talk, have a conversation with everybody once. And sure. I was, we were in this conversation and they were like, who do you want to be in this race? Do you want to be like, do you want to be the strong leader? And like the person who comes, who's like a strong leader during the pandemic. And I was like, and at the beginning, I was like, no, I, um, I was like, I've always like, I've spent the last year preparing to run for this seat. I love going to school board meetings. Like, let's be, um, let's be very like pragmatic and very, this is something we can talk about more later about how our, our local elections do need to change. Um, so this seat has no formal onboarding. And that is one of the, that's a really big accessibility issue for me. And one of the reasons that I, it's, and it's also, there's about 60 school board meetings a year and you get paid a $200 stipend. So when we can talk about this more later, but um, yeah. when we see people come into these seats, it can take them six months to get their bearings. It's the way, that's when you see people who are like, oh yeah, the first year it was just me like adjusting. And uh, the, and when you see people who have trouble like balancing this position, which most board members spend about 20 hours a week on the position and even our outgoing board member. And I really tried to mimic her when I prepared for this. She easily spent 40 hours a week because she really liked to be out in the community. Um, and I was like, let's be, I was like, I want to be pragmatic. Like I'll focus on all the work that I've done ahead of time and just be like, you know, I'm, I'm here to just like do the job well. And what I wasn't expecting was, uh, I was the only I was the only candidate who early on said that I opposed our current reopening plan. And I had a lot of anxiety over that to begin with. And, it, and again, we can talk about how mm. our local elections do need to have some reform because it, it's so telling that I was the only one who early on was saying that there was one other candidate who um, ended up opposing our current reopening. But um, yeah, I was the only candidate who was endorsed by our local teachers union and our local uh, uh, classified educational staff union. And of all of the things I'm most proud of in this race, it like I didn't realize that I, I didn't realize that I would be the person who was like really speaking up for teachers during this time. And I, I would say that's probably what I'm most proud of is getting that endorsement and how many so many of our donations came from teachers so many teachers put up our yard signs that's definitely what I'm most proud of and that wasn't I didn't think that would happen and it is it's interesting that that is how it played out because this is an issue that our community was very split over yeah yeah I mean it and it it just it feels so um, as folks know I have a one kid in high school still, the other two are off flitting around in the world, but a uh, senior here in, in the Pali district. And we, you know, I, my, my wife is an educator, you know, we did public and private in San Francisco and obviously our, our uh, public school here and, you know, appreciate the work that everybody puts into this and, you know, refrain from demonizing anyone, but we're like, yeah. this doesn't make sense that we're doing yeah. what we're doing. Um, and my, I mean, our, our, our kid has opted out of going back uh, mm-hmm. in January, even if there is anything, which seems very unlikely right now yeah. uh, in, in any case. But what were the main, I mean, I, I think I probably know, but what were the main reasons you opposed uh, the reopening plan? What were some of the, the, the reasons that you felt like this was not the way to go? Um, I'll give some short answers and then I can also give a very long answer, but um <laughs> Yeah, I might just jump to like, I'm very into like <laughs> long policy answers, but like, so <laughs> how our, how our district, part of this has to do with, to me, how our district addresses problems. And I think a problem arises and we tend to jump on it, but we don't really talk about short-term and long-term goals. 
I'm somebody where my volunteer work actually included uh, helping addressing uh, local gun control from a school safety perspective. And so that was, I was familiar with some of our school safety. And I think when I look at the issue of school safety long-term, I kind of think, okay, in October, 2019, we had our safety, um, our head of safety at our schools give a really big update. And I really would have preferred okay, take that moment. We had a really big update on safety in, in that was safety focused on preventing school shootings. And let's take that moment and one, let's talk about where we want to move with that position because we didn't know a pandemic was going to happen this year, but we did know that we were going to have a hotter summer and a smokier fall. And how are we, I think I would have liked to see last fall one, I wanted that person to be much more in front of our educators because a lot of our educators don't know who he is and he's, in a, he's so amazing. And I would have also liked us to talk about starting to make really more long-term plans of how we're adapting our classrooms. So then the pandemic hit. And to me, the, our, the way that we handled reopening is I, want us to fo- I wanted us to focus on I always said this throughout the campaign. It's like when everything's unpredictable, let's focus on what we can control. There's things that we always knew, you know, six feet apart, masks on. We always knew Zoom learning was not an option for some students. We always knew we needed more mental health resources. Um, I really would have liked us to collaborate with educators and work with, collaborate with educators and talk to them about developing solutions during this time. Uh, I use this metaphor throughout the campaign, but in the Great Depression, there was a lot of unconventional approaches that were taken. And one was these puppet shows started to, to like pop up to bring communities joy. A lot of modern day children's theater programs came out of that. And I would have really liked us to, okay, let's focus on the content constants right now. Let's work with educators. Let's talk about, okay, this was supposed to be a really big year for us with project-based learning. What can we still do to make that happen? What can we do that allows students to work independently? And what can we try in terms of uh, in terms of addressing our, our other needs. Like I volunteered with a program to address social isolation that our district used to use, but we don't use it anymore. So those, con- those constants were always there. Instead, I feel like what happened is I think that we put ourselves in a really spread ourselves thin trying to get us to reopen. And that has always felt like a very unpredictable goal to me because of exactly what we saw this week, uh, we suddenly went back into the purple. We, there's, n- there's so much of this pandemic we can't control and we don't know how that's gonna impact our schools right now. And I, you know, our educators had to redesign our school system in about 70 days. And that is just seeing us over and over again, like try to do one thing one week to get us to reopening. And then by the end of the week, it's back to the drawing board. You know, our special, we had an option for special education students that opened the summer. That was shut down pretty quickly. We had, we'd been planning to open in August originally. And there was a um, hearing the plans of like, okay, if we're, we have, you know, permission from the state that if we reopen, we need portable sinks on our campus oh, we just, okay, we're, we just got permission to order those. We're ordering those now. They're not arriving until September. So they're going to be arriving after, we, after we're scheduled to reopen. And I, when we started, so, so we've had our elementary schools open and there's so much of the, there's so much of the plan to me that just, it, it isn't strong. And one is that like, for just starters, the big one for me is that we haven't communicated with our educators enough and met them where they are and they've been terrified. And I said this, but like the fact that they're terrified, these plans aren't good enough. Um, And then there is just a lot of, and if they're terrified, they can't create a strong learning environment. And then there's a lot of logistics issues, which like we just don't want to see of the fact that when our elementary schools began to reopen, had teachers call into the meeting saying, hey, there's, there's issues like, for example, in some of our, our elementary schools, they have those push button sinks that the water comes out for about 10 seconds. So a student can't really wash their hands for 30 seconds. It's like, we cannot have, we cannot have that happening. Right before our elementary schools reopen, had educators call me in the days leading up to that being like, 
okay, they tell us we're supposed to have these safety plans and checklists. Like I still haven't seen them. We cannot have that happening. That's, that's just unacceptable. And it's, I, and we can talk more about, there's more logistics I could name of just hearing the, the way that hybrid is structured at our elementary schools, how another thing a teacher asked me was, um, because of the way that um, hybrid works and how we have to go in shifts at the elementary schools, uh, there's nobody. All around the world, poverty is stealing choices from kids. It's time to give those choices back. Introducing Chosen, World Vision's new invitation to sponsorship. For the first time, kids have the power to choose their own sponsors. Now the choice is theirs. The choice to take hold of their future, and even the choice to step into a life-changing relationship with you. Learn more at worldvision.org slash chosen. When you have a problem, Fox 12 gets you answers. The violence continues. When crime hits too close to home, we want to make sure your voice is heard. We're listening and ready to confront your problems head on. How can Fox 12 help you? Tell us at kptv.com. There was a, I, one elementary school where nobody was supervising recess, so they were looking to vo- for volunteers to supervise recess because otherwise teachers would have to miss their breaks right. to supervise recess. Principals are doing, you know, seven jobs at once. And we, it's a lot to do to our people. And it's, I don't think it's being, those are kind of all of the practical reasons that yeah. I don't think it's being done well. Yeah. It's interesting because churches all around the country uh, are struggling with the same thing. And, you know, every month relooking at numbers and deciding, and it's just, it becomes just taxing on a community when you're always revisiting and never really being able to think longer term about what's happening. I mean, our community, we've, I'm really proud of our church that we early on, we said end of the year. And then we just made a decision that we said end of May. And even then we're like, we may get to close to that time and decide we're not ready yet either. And so I'm not like our month to month meetings. I'm like, we're not, we're not worried about it. Like we're doing what we need to do in that middle ground. So it's interesting as, as we have been kind of watching all this and we saw lots of friends and community in San Francisco and watching their kind of struggles that they're having. um, You know, I, I think basically the pandemic is forcing us into what we need to do. I mean, I, yeah. and I certainly don't, wish that but it's become clear that they're not going back in january when uh at this point but let's let's keep let's move on so um so uh, we have so many things we could talk about so i mean there's (laughs) let's so let's let's talk about racism uh so let's talk about racism so uh you had said you listened to some other things that we talked about i mean i you know i'm i'm New to Palo Alto, and people are going to get like, yes, 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 we know you're new to Palo Alto. <laughs> but it is one of those things that um, I get to look at this community with some different eyes. And, you know, I'm here for the long term. It's, I'm not some carpetbagger. I'm not going to be here for two years and then take off somewhere. I mean, I, we're, we're committed to being here for a decade or if not more. And so when we come in, you know, my experience at Palo Alto has been, yeah, you know, if I thirty percent, a lot of the stereotypes are true. Seventy <laughs> percent um, have to be like, okay, maybe it's not that. So, but one of the things I have noticed is that this the sense of how open, progressive, kind of uh, how how dare you think about us as racist at all, kind of, which just feels very provincial, and it just feels like like no community is perfect. So, I always felt like a community that was really healthy and movement would acknowledge that like there are issues that we have to deal with. And if any time to deal with that now would is now. Right. So, I mean, you grew up here. I mean, what has been your experience of, you know, how, how has your understanding of race been formed here? You know, you went away, you come back. I mean, what's the situation going on with, from your perspective as a Palo Alton, around racism, institutional racism in the city. I mean, there's lots of things we can poke at, policing yeah. you can look at foothills i mean there's tons yeah. of things but the floor is yours cool let's dive in so i think that's a fantastic question of how race impacted um how i grew up here because i think i think about a lot when pushing solutions in our schools one of the most formative things that happened um for me so i grew up here and I went to, and I went to college and 
Um, I went into women's studies and my, my major was focused on intersectional approaches to issues in, in schools and communities, as I was saying. So that means creating solutions where nobody's left behind because of their race, gender, et cetera. One of the reasons I chose that program was in my freshman year, I had two professors who were white women who really went out of their way to make sure some conversations happen. And I worry a lot that like conversations like that happen by accident and like, or they happen by chance, I would say. And I'm, I'm kind of thinking back to some of those conversations now about just things that you wouldn't, that I had not thought about before of when you're walking down a street. I will actually, this is a really, I've debated telling this story and it's a pretty like vulnerable story of, uh, um, but I think it's important. So one of the conversations that um, they had was talking about when you're walking down the street and um, if you're a person of color, seeing like white people cross to the other side. Um, And the, um, and I was like, oh, that's really like, huh, that's interesting. And the day after that lecture, I was um, walking out of my, I was walking down the street from my dorm um, and there was a group of construction workers who were people of color and I caught myself crossing the street and kind of thinking back of, had never realized I had done that before, had no idea I was doing that and thinking back, okay, why did I do that? because I grew up in a community where it, cause it's, it's all of the little things that influence you. It's like when you're seeing some people of color, the only time you're seeing them, it's maybe on a television show and they're portrayed as a criminal. The only time you're seeing them is maybe in crime reports. You're not necessarily seeing people around you depending on what your community looks like. Palo Alto is a diverse, is more diverse compared to a lot of suburbs in the country. And we don't always give that diversity the vehicles it needs to thrive. And I think that so many of these issues are, are so local because I wouldn't have been able to think about that incident because I'm somebody where when I grew up, um, I didn't have any white friends. All of my friends like looks um, were of, so um, all, all of my friends were Asian American when I was growing up. And it is one of those things where when I was a teenager, it was one of those things where as a teenager would say things like, you know, oh, I can't be racist. Like none of my friends look like me. (laughs) And I'm, I'm, I worry so much about like, if I hadn't had those two professors right when I was 18, that happened by chance. And there are really amazing teachers in our district. One I think of in particular, who has taught these issues at the elementary school level for years. He said this is the first year he's really feeling really listened to about teaching the kind of curriculum that recognizes that. Because I think we do, you know, we are, there's a lot of things that, that we do are, pre, are progressive, but I think it's also, I hate to use the phrase listening sometimes because that can be a really passive thing if it's not backed by action. But like one of the things that I really hope comes out of this year, especially right now, was, um, I hope that comes out of this year is realizing like just one example, the police are not a resource that, er- that anybody can use. They're just not a resource. We can have all of the police reform in the world. It's just not a resource that everybody can use. And I think then thinking about like, okay, what are the, what are the impacts of that? If you're a person who doesn't feel comfortable going to the police and you're experiencing domestic violence, well, then there's somebody who we know is, you know, per- um, perpetuating domestic violence that's not being addressed. Okay, what does, you know, what does that mean? And I think I last, earlier this year, I wrote to council with a timeline for community-based public safety. And um, that's something that I really think we need to transition to because it's like, okay, what does safety look like? And I think realizing the broader impacts of I've talked a lot about mental health in this community it's like okay if you're if your teenager is in crisis do you want a police officer showing up or do you want a mental health professional showing up I think everybody in this community would agree that they would rather have like a mental health professional showing up yeah yeah Yeah. I mean it's interesting as I interviewed the candidates almost across the board nine of ten said yes to the interviews um and almost across the board everybody mentioned you know community you know doing cahoots doing all the so it will be interesting to see um if you know if it wasn't just a, a 
performative fad time for folks and if it really uh, translates into policy decisions because and that and i you know i feel like i've been around long enough i feel like an old man i've been around long enough to like to know that you know there's election time and then there's okay now you're in this seat and you're hearing the institution itself guide you and mm -hmm. and our city council also not paid and all that like so you're just <laughs> listening to those who are the ones that are, that perceive themselves to lose mm -hmm. if if in, you enact change uh, mm -hmm. but i want to i want to go back so i think the diversity thing your palate is really interesting for me as an asian american because i always tell folks now like this is incredibly diverse in in certain ways and in other mm -hmm. ways not at all um, and our family is always talking about like when, you know, Prop 16 this year, mm -hmm. all the no on 16 things that were out and around. And, and yeah. you know, as an Asian American, I'm like, I bet all these are Asians who are like, we got ours, no longer need to look at this kind of thing. And we did the same thing in San Francisco with Lowell High School of doing away with with uh, questions around race and ethnicity. And I think that is an interesting dynamic here around if we start talking about white supremacy and how the impact of, of people of color who buy into that because of wealth, you know, I think that there is something about Palo Alto. Again, my Palo Alto uh, congregants, I love this place. Don't get me wrong. But I, I do think there is the, the wealth creates this false sense of wealth and progressiveness creates this false sense of we, we don't have these institutional issues to deal with and we don't have to be bold about it. And I, I think that's going to be the thing that's going to be difficult with this current city council and incoming as well is how, are they really going to challenge the police? Are we really going to put $150 million into the, the infrastructure of the police? Are we going to look at demilitarizing? Are we going to look mm -hmm. beyond eight? Can't wait. I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think folks are going to have to keep pushing on that because yeah. It doesn't feel like this is the group that got elected to do it. I yeah. think that like, um, yeah, I think there's so many, so many aspects of what, of what yeah, we just talked go. about. Just go. I, <laughs> I like, I think that the, the, yeah, so many aspects of like, I, even starting with like, this is the, the positions uh, with council on board, the, you know, there's, they're, it's the almost unpaid. They're paid so low. <laughs> and the and it is so uh, a little bit of, of background. So um, I was actually I don't talk about this a lot. I was actually running for office at the same time that my mom was. She actually won her election. Um, she oh. is in a I peer pressured her to run for office because I was like, I'm not doing this alone. <laughs> um, and she did a fantastic job. She's like much more introverted than me, but um, she's in a very rural community and seeing her kind of walk through the because the issues of policing there it's so different if they mm. it's the same but it's a different structure of if their police department happens to be fully staffed it's nine people and <laughs> the and it's right. so it's a very it's a very different dynamic of okay how they transition to community-based public safety what is that going to look like they're not in a super wealthy community and the um here I think it is like the one thing about like what if, if I wish I, I'd won is like I because of my degree I know about how to shape solutions around that because I think that it's easy to um, and I don't want to discredit this too much but when an incident yeah. like the death of George Floyd happens you know we can put out a statement that you know mm -hmm. um, condemns racism but like I think it can be tricky for um, people who don't have the background to think about what long-term solutions look like. And I think about what happens in our schools and in our neighborhoods. So our discussions around equity in racism in the classroom, you know, sometimes when we talk about the opportunity gap, and that's a phrase that gets thrown out a lot in the school board, is for the last year, the discussion has kind of been around culture versus moving to a concierge education model. So first, like, let's define the opportunity gap. If you're a, like a black or brown student, you're a lot less likely to graduate in our district and you're less likely to be college ready when you graduate. And so part of this discussion has been, do we move to a concierge education model where if something happens that a lot of families have experienced where it's like, this is what I'm not a person of color. And what happened to me when I was 10 was 
my reading level started to slip. Uh, my mom, who was going to work at 5 a.m., coming home to 7 p.m., had to like really push my principal and my teacher and be like, hey, she's less engaged in the classroom. Like she's, you know, she's always written paragraphs. She's writing sentences. Um, she's like not really pumped to be in the classroom. She is falling behind. Really had to work to get her, get their attention. Got me in a free after school reading program. In a few months late, later, I was back on track with my reading level. It's when somebody starts to fall behind, they get caught. That's what like a concierge education model would look like. The other part of it that's discussed a lot is culture. It is microaggressions. It is also for me, what I think about is the very brave student who spoke out on um, the Palo Alto online town hall about hearing, an N hearing the N word from educators. Um, I worry about issues like Title VI and we've done a lot to enforce our Title IX rights, which is about preventing sexual harassment. Title VI is about creating an equal and fair classroom environment. And it's like, okay, do we need to be investing in those as well? Because, or are we gonna see what's happened with our Title IX cases where we let it go for a long time and then we got hit with a bunch of lawsuits. And I think, and then in our neighborhoods, what I also see is moving to things like community-based public safety and when I, what I worry about is, okay, I grew up here. There's, I, I grew up here with, you know, the comment I always got, like, people were like, nobody's friends, like all your friends all look different. They're from all over the world. And things that were really normal to me, like Bongarov is the most popular club at school. I grew up in Midtown. So it's like, you go to the Obon Festival every summer. That's the normal for you. I worry about those avenues for diversity being protected and creating more of them. I helped the Palo Alto Recreation Foundation with their fundraising and it was to try to create more events in the community. Um, I've put forth a proposal for us to have our first family friendly pride festival. I'm a member of the LGBT community. If our students have to go to other communities to find cultural centers like LGBT youth yeah. centers, LGBT celebrations, that's a really big detriment. Like I wanted our Chinese New Year's festival to you know, it's in a community center. It's not out on University Avenue. Other cities on, on the peninsula, it's out on University Avenue. It's yeah. something that more people come to the city to. I, I, I found that really interesting that that we almost outsource all of that kind of stuff to other communities. I, it, I just, yeah. you know, as, as we, uh, our congregation does a big Pride Sunday every year. And I was like, so when's Pride in Palo Alto? And people were like, well, you got it. Either are we going to go by San Mateo, Redwood City Pride? Are we going to go get Silicon Valley Pride? Are we going to like, so Palo Alto doesn't do its own Pride thing? And I mean, I think that's, yeah. I mean, there's just, this is great. I, I do want to make, do we have some questions? So there's yeah, some Q&A. Let's go for so, it. So uh, let's, let's, let's start. I'm going to start with Leif Erickson. So Katie, uh, Leif says, Katie, thank you for having the courage to enter this race. Uh, can you say more about, uh, what schools can be doing to support students having mental health challenges and what role can parents be playing to better support students? Ooh, fantastic question. Okay. Um, so I was running on, I think right now the schools in general, I think do need to adapt to the CDC guidelines for a trauma informed approach because we're going through a traumatic event and we're seeing, so if you go to the CDC, they have a, a like, it's like a six or eight step guideline for a trauma informed approach and different industries are like adapting to that, finding ways to adapt that approach because like we are, um, cause we're going through a really traumatic incident. Um, I got some notes on, on mental health right now. I would really like to see our, um, since I was a student, our social and emotional curriculum has developed a lot stronger. I want to see that to continue to develop and I would say, so the number one thing for me, um, the organization I've worked with in the last few years is the Junior League. Their entire model is to address issues in communities that they think are causing a lot of problems but are being overlooked. And their entire focus is social isolation in youth and elderly populations. And with youth populations, we like students to have five adults in their lives that they really and sincerely trust. We find that when that happens, students are safe from a lot of things. If they're being bullied, an adult picks up on it really quickly. One of those adults picks up on, if there's like predation or something scary, somebody picks up on it really, really quickly. Students are more likely to be healthy and successful. And this is something that the other local youth nonprofits in the area agree with like Project Safety Net. Um, what I want us to do, and the thing is, is in the Bay Area, 
because of the high cost of living, very few students, very few young people have those five adults relationships. And um, I can tell you as somebody who has a lot of friends who babysit for a lot of families, like it's hard to, if you're two parents and you're working full time and 60% of the families in our district are renters. So, you know, that, um, you know, you're working a lot to try to, you know, make rent the, it can be hard to get those trusted adult relationships. I really pushed for us to have a um, alumni to student program to help bridge that gap a little bit, especially with teenagers, like talking to people who are a few years out of it and um, can talk, talk you through like what your future looks like post-secondary. I think that would help with that tremendously. And also the school board, there were several reasons I pushed for that. Um, one is because the school board also every year talks about solutions that involve alumni we, and doesn't really make any movement from them. And then we also have really good bones for it. Um, of We have informal alumni groups on Facebook and we have an alumni um, organization at Pali. So I think it's just, I, I would like to see more people organize around that. I think that would really help with um, supporting our students. Thank you. Awesome. Uh, let me go to Evan's question. Uh, so Evan, it's a kind of a two-parter. Uh, mm -hmm. Evan's asking, so uh, online learning in another district, uh, it's not working for his grandson, high school senior. I got one of those home too, and it's it's whatever it is. Um, and can I, So there's one question. I think there's a question about online learning and kind of when it's not working or what we yeah. can do to make it work better. And then the second question is, uh, can extra resources, money from the next federal stimulus, go to state local governments to help. So I think there's a funding question. So there's a, a philosophical, practical question about online learning. And then just how does funding play into it? I mean, I, would, I will say coming out of a district that is scrapping for funds all the time, Palo Alto, you know, even in their preparation for opening has been able to do so much stuff and it's scale yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So I'm grateful for the resource there. So let's take the first one, online learning. It's not working for a lot of kids, even ones that wouldn't like, it doesn't seem like it matters whether you can predict who it was going to work for or not. Yeah. And so what do we do about that? I mean, what are your thoughts about online learning at this point? I think, um, and this is something that not every community member is going to share. So, um, mm -hmm. but to me, the number one thing right now is like everybody's priority right now is, um, don't get coronavirus and don't get COVID-19 and keep your mental health as there as possible. I think we are going to need a long-term learning loss recovery plan that could mm -hmm. look like summer school in the coming years, because I think there are students that this is going to really struggle with. And I think we are going to have some catch up to do, but I think, um, I, I'm, I'm going to give a pretty like basic advice of like, I think the best thing you can do during this time is like, um, really communicate with your educators as much as possible and talk about, talk about if you're struggling. Um, because so in my building, most of my neighbors are teachers. And, um, and so like, um, we've talked about the kind of realities of the situation. And I think that like, I think especially with the teenagers right now, like, go, go easy on yourself. I, I know that there's still teenagers in this district who have decided to load up on APs during this time. And it's yep, like, yep. Okay, no, no college is going to, you know, be looking for you to like yeah. really spread yourself thin during this time. Yeah. I, I have always felt when they went to pass fail last semester, that was great. It, mm -hmm. it was, it was just let, let the students do what they can do, try to find a baseline and stop with the grades at, in this environment. Cause, but I, I will say my, my kids' friends, we're freaking out because now how am I going to separate myself from other people if I can't get the A and you're going to get the B, but we're going to look the same now. I mean, and so the culture here around that, I mean, what if, what if they decided this whole year is going to be a pass fail year and just everybody take a breath, like just do what you can do. But you know, I don't, I, it, it feels, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, even my college student who's a sophomore you know, she's like, it's fine, but am I learning at the same level as I was like, I've learned if I was in class yeah, constantly and doing that. I, it'll be interesting to see what this gap looks like, dude. I mean, and I will say in some ways, everybody's experiencing it. So there is something about our whole country experiencing it. And I hope colleges 
are taking that all to in consideration. Yeah, we'll we'll see. Uh, yeah, like I I think the I if any college is expecting normal results during that, that is a college to stay away from. And I don't know yeah, exactly. any that are expecting are expecting normal <laughs> results. I think that like this is another conversation entirely. But I I wish that colleges there's a money making aspect of, of oh, colleges yeah. and then like oh, there's a yeah, yeah. college student right now like. <laughs> The, the way oh, our house community. our house is filled our house is filled with higher education is a scam i mean like <laughs> we have these long conversations we actually were like so why don't you write your personal statement about why higher education in the united states isn't worth your time and her the person that's working with her does like so that may not be <laughs> well this is the kind of household we're raising our kids in go ahead Tell them why it. you think the whole thing is a scam and let's just see if they think you're special. See if that pops. In your oh my God. That's so much of me as a teenager of like reading about like how our education system needs to fundamentally change. And Oh man, I, I, we have uh, one of my kids is taking uh, an economics class and they're basically learning how to gentrify. And it is just oh one of God. these like, it's just every time after class, I'm like, okay, just take a breath, cool down a little bit, just cool down a little bit. And then can get into it. All right. So it is already 1254 and we are out of time, unfortunately. Uh, so, um, but I do want to ask a few more questions. We got to stay yeah, under an hour so we can get this on, on uh, Instagram. Uh, any questions for me? Anything? Oh, I mean, up? you're, I'm curious as a, as a faith leader, like what are the feedback you get of what is the most important issues in the community? that you want to see housing 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 um uh those are experiencing homelessness i think uh so the church that i'm at is a fairly progressive social justice congregation and so a a lot of i mean super involved in the in in elections and had to figure out how to do that differently this year but housing um affordable housing uh is 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 constantly part of our conversation as well as as institutional racism within our congregation and in the community, we're doing a lot of internal work around that. So, um, but, but housing is definitely since I've been, been here. All right. The last three questions I did warn you about that you were going to have to have to figure out what are you reading? What are you watching? And what are you listening to? Oh, let's see. Uh, none of these are like really like political answers, um, but like. That's okay. Uh, They're often or not. <laughs> yeah. I think right now I'm, uh, let's see, I'm watching. I like to have like really niche uh, YouTube things on in the background. If anybody watches like Jenny Nicholson, very, very like talking about like very niche, um, like very niche reviews of pop, of pop culture. I like to have that on in the background. Um, uh, you know, all of these are like what I'm decompressing <laughs> with after the election. So like, which is okay. totally, yeah. Yeah. So, so, so what do you, what else are you watching or, li- or um, listening to or reading? I'm listening to, the podcast, The Bradshaw Boys, which is um, three adult men reviewing Sex in the City. It is a fantastic <laughs> podcast. Um, I really, really. I, so did they watch it by the episode and just talk about it? They watched it by episode and they went oh in gosh. thinking they would hate it. And then they're like, this is an amazing show. <laughs> and they're like totally into it now. It's like, yeah. I can't believe so and so. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, cool. And then what am I reading? There was something. Oh, I downloaded both Halsey and Lana Del Rey's poetry books. Both of them just came out with poetry books. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. I, I, I'm watching K- Korean dramas the whole time. That's all oh, I'm doing yes. because you know, the thing about Korean dramas, one, I just, I'm a sucker for that stuff and I, I'm a romantic and love watching, but you can't do anything else when you're watching a foreign language yeah. show. And so you have to not be checking your phone, not looking at anything else. And I've, I've, my discipline during the election is not to watch any news during the day. That is a good choice. <laughs> and then like it, it the, the chaos is going to be there at noon or at five and there's nothing I can do to change that. So there you go. Um, all right. So it's so good to talk to you, but thanks everybody for joining us today. Remember you can watch or listen to previous webinars and register for upcoming ones in the new year at visiting fpresspa.org. You can connect with Katie on Instagram at Katie Causey. You got a great, you got, you got that one right off the bat. That's, that's yeah. awesome. Uh, you can always connect with me on social media, on the social media platforms via at B Reyes Chow. Please be sure to follow and connect to First Presbyterian Church on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at FPC Palo Alto. And subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for First Presbyterian Church of Palo Alto. Thanks to Derek Kikuchi, as always, for helping out with this first season. Uh, And again, thank you, Katie, for sitting down with me today. 
Yeah, yeah, this was super fun. <laughs> okay, glad we could do it. Again, everybody, thanks for joining us. This, again, is our final webinar of the year. It was a great way to end. Uh, we will uh, start uh, uh, booking guests and things for 2021. Uh, and our first webinar will then happen the week of the 11th of January. So whatever day, the 13th, I think will be it. So uh, until then, have a great rest of 2020 and we'll see you in 2021. That's good. Thank you so much. BRC and Friends was produced, written, recorded, and edited by Bruce Reyes Chow with zero help from his dog Vespa. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to BRC and Friends wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please follow, like, tag, and share on all the platforms via B-R-C-A-N-D-F-R-I-E-N-D-S. Thanks for listening to BRC and Friends. Is your car no longer stopping like it used to? Don't miss out on spring brake deals at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Our professional parts people will help you find the brake parts and supplies you need to do the job right the first time. You'll find great deals on brake pads and rotors, fluids, degreasers, and more. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit O'ReillyAuto.com. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Oh, that's a cheer we used to do in softball. Uh, what? It's, uh, actually Geico's. Whenever someone hit a triple, we would wave our bats and yell, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. But we never got to use it because we would only hit home runs. Annoying. The phrase is from Geico because they help save people money? Geico? Yeah, they were our team sponsor. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more.